So um, I want to tell you a story. It happened in 1984, back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> Carla and I were married in 1983, and then in 1984 we moved to Dallas, Texas, so that I could start seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary. So we were both newlyweds and first-year students that year at Dallas. Well, like a lot of you, perhaps, unless you were wiser than me, uh, I started my marriage with very little money, and we had our little jobs and everything to kind of make it through. But we started our furniture experience this way. We'd have people over, and we'd have cardboard boxes with a little towel on it or something as our table, you know? And we started out with just very little furniture when we started out. We were very thankful for it. And so, in the goodness of God, we had an, uh, a relative who said, hey, we're going to send you a little bit of money, small amount of money, for you to buy a couple of pieces of furniture. And we're like, yes. <laughs> so we went out shopping for furniture, and we found this very inexpensive set, a little love seat, and a couch. Little couch, little love seat. But then, and that filled up the budget that they had given us this gift. But there was one other piece next to it. That upholstered chair. Aww. You know what I'm talking about. You walk into those places, there's three things in the set, and you're like, oh yeah. Well, that third item took us over the budget that they had given us the money for, and we could afford it, but we couldn't afford it. Mistake number one in my first year. So I decided to buy it. We bought all three pieces, and I borrowed a friend's pickup truck to go pick it up. And I asked two of my seminary friends, would you go with me and we'll pick up the furniture? So we get to the place, and as we're loading it into the truck, the employee there on the loading dock is watching us as we're putting the material into the truck. And we put the, the love seat in, and we put the couch in, and then we get that big upholstered chair, and we kind of put it on top, but we kind of wedge it in. <laughs> what, you know where this is going? <laughs> we can guess. That's right, Greg. So I said to the guy, what has now become 30-something years of famous line, we use this all the time when imminent disaster is coming. <laughs> I asked him, how does this look? Do you think this is going to be okay? He said, that's going nowhere but home. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> so we got on Stemmons Freeway in Dallas, and we're cruising along in the pickup truck, my two friends and I. I don't even know how an upholstered chair can get caught in the wind. I don't even know what happened. It pretty much went up and smashed into the car in back of us. Oh, yeah, who's going full speed behind us? Chair went up. I'm looking in the rearview mirror. My friends aren't. They're just like, like this. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to keep going. So it goes up, smashes, and I can see it obliterate when it hits the thing. I'm like... Oh, great. So we pulled over. I was running back with my friends. The car had pulled over to the side. And indeed, the, the, the chair was destroyed. It was just all kinds of trash everywhere. And this is what ran through my mind, actually ran through my mind at that point. I was 20-something years old. I had no idea how car insurance worked. No idea. And it thought, I wonder if my insurance covers stupid. <laughs> <It does. laughs> Not my policy. 
And it was that moment of going, I had insurance. And now you'll know where I'm going in this. But I had no assurance that I was covered. Because I never read my policy. And I never talked to the agent. You get the analogy. For us to have greater assurance as Christians, we need to talk to the agent. And we need to be in the word of God and read the policy constantly. Or else we forget what's really covered. And by the way, it wasn't covered. And I paid out of pocket. And I've learned many things from that. No one was hurt. No one was hurt. You didn't tell him it was a defective chair. Why, that chair was falling apart when it hit. Before I got home. Some of you people are devious. And you didn't realize that it was a mistake to buy the chair in the first place. Well, that was the bigger lesson. It's God's first lesson. Apparently, I had never heard of Larry Burkett or Dave Ramsey at that point. Right? I now have. So. That's it. So, basically, guys, today we're looking at Romans 4, verses 13 to 17, lesson 12. And the final talk here on chapter 4 of justification has always been by grace through faith. Let me read what I've written at the top of the page to kind of summarize and jump into the passage. The promise to Abraham, that is the Abrahamic covenant, of a land, a seed, and a blessing, was given by grace, that is unconditionally and unmerited towards Abraham. It was given by grace so as to be guaranteed, not based on human response, but on the Lord's plan and provision. Where we've been in Romans, Paul has been very clear. We're saved by grace, and we've talked about grace. We're saved through the instrument of faith. We've done a bunch of talks on that together. What Paul has turned to at the end of chapter 4 now is now going into the Abrahamic covenant, which I only began last week in a few minutes. Why is he turning our attention to the promise, the covenant? Because it's the insurance policy. It's the whole covenant is a contract, right? And so the Abrahamic contract that God gave to Abraham covers us. We are under that policy. We're in the new covenant, which is part of the Abrahamic blessing. And so we're under the policy of the Abrahamic covenant. And to understand, Paul has now thrown this out and said, so the promise, the covenant, the contract is of a particular kind. It is not these things, but it is this which ought to give you encouragement. Is it hot enough in here for you guys? Pretty warm. I saw two people in the back go, I'm not coming to church anymore. If we could do anything on the, on the temperature, it would be great. Beautiful. Oh, Gwen's got an app. Still does. All right, I'm being a little random. Let me take you back. So on our page here at the top then, verses 13 to 17 of chapter 4, Paul dives into the issue of the promised covenant and the particular nature of the contract. I want you to keep that in mind. What kind of contract is the new covenant that we have that God has given to us? Let me read the passage again for that purpose. For the promise to Abraham, that is the covenant or the contract, or to his descendants, 
that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law. It's not a law contract, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise or the contract is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there's also no violation. And then verse 16 and following is the key. For this reason, it, the contract with Abraham, is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the contract or promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, that is Jewish people, who are elect, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. That is God, and this is a key kind of contract it is, who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that do not exist. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of contract <clears throat> that does not only promise a conclusion to the matter, and does not and simply bring you and say, hey, you could get this. But the contract itself, which has been given, provides for you the resources to accomplish it. God's contract is the kind of contract that brings people back from the dead. We have a contract or insurance from God in which the promise is not simply, if you believe, you'll have these things, but rather, I'm going to cause you to believe when you're dead. The contract is written in such a way that who's going to pay the, pay the premium? God is. Uh, how am I going to be faithful to this contract and never mess up? Uh, you're going to mess up and God's going to take care of the mess up. This contract is so clear that we need to get our heads around it because assurance rises when we understand the nature of the promise that God has made. So let me belabor this here in the middle of the page. We are under the new covenant. What does it promise? In red, left to right, I suggest there are five things. The new covenant demonstrates to us that God has predestined us for acceptance of the new covenant. Let me stop there. Until we get to chapter 9, Paul's not going to dig down deep into election and predestination. And so we're not going to today. We're merely going to define the terms. But this is the kind of contract. Walk it back. Left to right. The contract is not simply a promise. It doesn't simply start with Abraham's promise. But you walk back that God chose Abraham to receive that promise. That's the point of this. That God has predetermined to bless us in Christ in the new covenant. That that was chosen in eternity to bring us into the new covenant. So the new covenant is a promise, but it is backed by God's determinative decision to do it. So no one just gets in because, oh, God promised them if they're good or they believe. No. God's promise goes all the way back to, I'm going to do this. And then he promises here in time and space, then God provides the ability to do the promised thing. And then, having provided, he gives the strength to persevere in the contract. God keeps you in the contract. And then finally, the fifth part of here is paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. What kind of contract do we have? We have an unconditional contract. Now, last week I, start, I started there, 
and kind of dialed it back. And today I'm going to try to describe what I mean by unconditional. Don't I have to believe? Yes. Well, that's a condition. But what I'm dialing back all the way in the bigger picture is that condition is met by God's work. He provides the ability to believe. And therefore, there's no condition for the elect. They say, well, but that, is that just kind of getting around it? No, that's going to be the point of the passages we're going to read. That on the new covenant, God has not only chosen you for it, but given you the grace to do it. And so in that, there's no condition for you to meet that you cannot meet. He's like, but I can't believe. You're right. God brings the dead back. So what I'm doing today is dialing back, for Paul's purposes, to the backstory, and then we'll come back to faith as an instrument. Okay. Yes, ma'am. And when God commands and they say he, he, he scolds them and says, like the Pharisees or whatever, they don't listen. That's right. How does that match up? Or now, maybe it's another time. It's a great question. Let me, let me keep going. Okay. And I'm, I think I'm going to address it. And if I don't address it in about page three, okay. then ask me again. Okay. Because on page three, I just say, here's why the Pharisees. No, it's <laughs> a good question. All right, in the middle of the page again, I'm saying that God has chosen to bless us with the new covenant. He promises this new covenant to us. He provides for us to receive it. He keeps us persevering in it and ultimately brings us to paradise. What we need to do is read the Old Testament words on the nature of the new covenant, right? We need to say what God said or see what God said. He said, this is the covenant I'm going to make with you. And so we need to read it. Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So God promised to Israel... A new covenant. Not like the old covenant, the law. Because the law was a conditional covenant that they broke. And they did not get to enjoy the benefits of being in the land and all of those things. But verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their hearts I will write it. This contract of the new covenant does not start with, I'm going to save you if you believe. It starts with the backstory of God saying, I'm going to change you within. That's what kind of contract we have. Our faith is not meritorious. Why? Because God changed us so we could believe. The salvation is of the Lord. Even the contract from beginning to end is the work of God to save us. So again, he promises, I will put my law within them, and on their hearts I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sins I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars by light by night, 
who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And then he says, now here's how this could be broken though. This is that little fine print at the bottom of the page of the new covenant. This is, this is he'd have, he says, I admit it. There is a way for this covenant to be broken. And here's what he says. Verse 36. If this fixed order departs from me, what fixed order? The sun and the moon and the stars and the whole universe and everything. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, that is, it just vanquishes or vanishes from God. Then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Now, guys, don't get too wrapped up. It's like in the book of Job, somewhat poetic language. But the, the point of it being, God is saying, ain't going to happen. If somebody steals the universe from me, or Jacques Cousteau somehow finds out how to measure the earth, and, and it's all perfect, you got this, and you can measure the heavens. If that ever happens, I'll give up on Israel, who I swore in a contract that I would do this. Guys, we're about to read in a minute in Ezekiel where God says to a disobedient Israel, okay, Jeremiah 31, they're disobedient when they receive this message. But even Ezekiel, they're in, they're in trouble. They're, they're in Babylon. And God's going to say to them, hey, I'm not about to do this because of you. I'm doing this for me because I told people I would. If you look back up in the middle of the page one under provision, I've suggested a number of little terms in that box. Regeneration. I suggest that it's here as I'm going to put this in their heart. Conversion. You're going to do what I say. Justification is implied. And then in the next passage, we're going to see indwelling. God's going to give them their spirit, the Holy Spirit, and sanctify them. So let's look at that next passage rather long. Stay with me today. Please. Ezekiel 36, the promise. What kind of contract is the new covenant? This is when the people who were under contract were in disobedience. They were driving their car off the road. They were having car. They were having chairs come up out of their car. <laughs> they were doing crazy stuff. Some of these people had become Las Vegas Raider fans. Yeah, it was bad. And they says this. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake, house of Israel, that I am about to act but for my own holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. Verse 23. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I show myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
and I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statues and are careful and follow my ordinances. I'm going to stop there. No wonder Israel should, Israel should be delighted with the promised new covenant. But what about those thousands of years of disobedience? What about now 2,000 years since the cross? What happened to Israel? Uh, we're going to read in Romans 11 where Paul says, Israel's not done. Israel's not done. God made a promise to them in which he's going to save the elect of Israel. Guys, when we read this, this is our new covenant too. Let me stop here. But this is promised to Israel. So why, why are we in it? Because we are Abraham's offspring. That's what Paul's been telling us. And because of Abraham, we're in the covenant by virtue of being, Romans 11 talks about being grafted into the olive tree. The olive tree of the Abrahamic covenant, not the olive tree of being Jewish, the Abrahamic covenant in Romans 11 is the olive tree. And we Gentiles who believe are grafted into those promises, into that tree of promise, the Abrahamic covenant, and we are going to be in the land. We're going to be at the banquet table. We're going to enjoy all of those wonderful promises. And this promised covenant is ours as well. The beauty of this is God is saying, this is a picture of how we were saved. We were dead. God made us alive. He gave us a new heart. He gave us the ability to believe. This is a beautiful contract. In verse 27, again, I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statues and are careful and follow my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave you, gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. Instead, I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. You will loathe yourself in your own sight for your wrongdoings and your abominations. Zechariah, they will see him whom they are pierced, and they will be in anguish. I am not doing this for your sake. I think God's trying to make that clear. Declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and humiliated for your ways, house of Israel. So this is what the Lord God says. On the day that I cleanse you from all your wrongdoings, I will populate the cities and the places of ruin will be rebuilt. This is after the tribulation, apparently. The desolated land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. And they will say, this is desolated land has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste, desolated and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that are left will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolated. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. This is what the Lord God says. This too I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their people like a flock like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during their appointed feast. So will the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. We're in the new covenant. Is it finished? No, because the new covenant promises to Israel here have some stuff we haven't even seen yet. Like we're in the new covenant enjoying the promises, but it's not, even, it's not even close to being fully fulfilled. Israel must be saved. That is the elect of Israel. The, all the eschatological things must take place, be in the kingdom. Some of these promises are yet future in the city of Jerusalem. But all that to say is, look how many times God says, I will. 
right? Friends, I'm just going to say this pastorally, not trying to prove this point, but it's the implication. The struggle with assurance of our salvation often is, in my estimation as a pastor, is because we're not in touch with the insurance agent, we're not in the policy sufficiently, and yet doubt can happen. But we need to meditate on the nature of the gospel, the nature of the new covenant, the nature of God's I will, and get off of the picture of every time I look at myself. But I didn't, but I will. But I haven't, but I will. God's eternal covenant, the blood of Christ, has saved you, and you're being sanctified by it, and he will finish it. And so, friend, if you're a struggler with doubts about your salvation... Um, they can't all just go away with one verse or whatever. But these were meant for us to enjoy and be like, it's all about God. I'm not keeping my salvation. I'm not, you know, but what if I don't do enough cool stuff? You can't get saved that way. And I would suggest this, and this is where a fuzzy line is. Here comes fuzzy line time. Assurance. Big assurance. Let's put 10 here. One. Little assurance. You can still be a Christian and only have a one. Yeah. It's not how much assurance. It's the object of your faith, right? It's Christ. But the question is, how do I get most assurance? How does my assurance grow? Well, the Word of God, because the Word of God says... Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith grows, a belief, a trust, as a Christian. Not just saving faith, but my faith grows as I'm in the word of God, in the contrary. And my assurance of getting to know him. The Holy Spirit, as we're going to get to chapter 8 again, the Holy Spirit witnesses with my spirit that I am a child of God. And the words of God that promise the contract, the contract are the words of God. When we doubt our salvation, we ultimately are doubting the contract. Now, I recognize there's this nuanced gray area of, wait a minute, aren't there signs that I'm actually in the covenant? Like, I might think I'm good, right? But what if my life doesn't match up to the covenant? Good question. It's never going to match up. Depends on what you mean. Depends on what you mean. Should there be fruit? I know I'm drawing a lot of things up here. Yes. Got to know them by their fruit. Fruit comes and goes. It says in Psalms, Psalm 1, hey, Sometimes it's in season and out of season. Sometimes fruit is growing, the tree is growing, and sometimes the tree looks pretty barren. If you take a snapshot, a photograph of your life on any given day, you can X yourself off the assurance map. Hey, some of you, if you don't have your coffee by 9 a.m., probably not a Christian. I would just say this. I'm not trying to give a theology of assurance right now. It's more pastorally practical because we're going to get to that in chapter 8 
Paul talks about assurance and the work of the Spirit and how you know. I'm just suggesting this. Take a longer view. Take a videotape. Uh, take a chronology of your, your Christian experience in the whole and begin to mark those things and not simply mark them on particular days or events in which you're like, well, I didn't do very well. Then go back and look at everybody who's been under contract in the Bible. Everybody under the contract. Peter. I don't even know this man. That's not the high water mark of Peter's life. <laughs> Probably the day of Pentecost is, right? But the point is, it's not, again, I'm not saying, hey, we should be excited about sin, but rather, what are you thinking that the ground of your assurance is? If it is your obedience or your marker of that, you're going to be up and down a lot in your assurance. The ground, the, the, the place of starting is always going to be the promises of Jesus Christ. If you believe, you will have eternal life. I believe that. Did he save good people? He only saves the ungodly. That's Paul's point in Romans 4. For him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifies the ungodly, that faith is counted or credited as righteousness. Okay, again, you can have a lot of questions, but don't you need to have fruit? Needs a funny word. Part of the package of this contract, in the contract, not fine print, right in the contract it says, so, I'm going to save certain people. Then when I save them, they're going to be justified, and they're going to be forgiven, and they should have, assur Oops, should have assurance. But in the contract it also says, and I'm going to provide the ability by the work of the Holy Spirit for them to do good works. Ephesians chapter 2, right? Verse 10. For God has provided good works for us to walk in. It's all part of the contract. But again, I'm just encouraging you that the way to read the contract is not backwards to forward. It's not, you know, I'm back here and I don't see all the fruit that I thought, so I couldn't possibly be this person. Uh, again, depends on what your fruit level you think you're supposed to have. If you're supposed to be Billy Graham and... Uh, Dave Doyle, you know, impossible <laughs> standards, you know, then there's no, there's no way you could be assured, okay? So, again, when we get more nuanced, I'm going to talk a lot about fruit. Should see, should see growth in our lives. Should see the outward signs of an inward reality. But not marking that as the one way that, that's it, that's how I know I'm a Christian today. Pastor, did, yeah. did Jesus himself say um, mm -hmm. in his parable that they will produce fruit, some 30, some 60, correct. some 90? So that is correct. No, we're not. And on the parable, and very good, and on the parable that Jesus tells about the, the workers who come to the vineyard, right? Some of those dudes are like, you're getting all the pay. That's a rewards passage. But they're in the laboring. They're killing it. And some people are saved on their deathbed, and they still get the same reward. Right. And so that is all part of the package. Those stories are to meant to tell us, my friends, don't look at yourself and compare yourself to others. Do not compare yourself to standards. Throw yourself recklessly on the gospel, on the work of Jesus Christ and the person of Christ as a Christian. I'm saved by grace, and I'm never going to be awesome. Some people feel that's a cop-out, but I think that is in line with what Paul's concerns are. And when we get to chapter 6, I think that'll be borne out. All right, page 2, one more time. 
I just wanted to use one more passage on the New Covenant to remind you that it has, in fact, been inaugurated, and that is Luke chapter 22. So when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. This is, of course, the Last Supper. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, excuse me, this is my body, which is being given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. God has inaugurated the new covenant. It's not completed. Israel, the elect, is only a small remnant, according to Romans 10 and 11. There are Jews who are experienced in the new covenant. Some people are like, oh, God made the new covenant. That's a Gentile thing, right? But no. That's why it says there's always a remnant. And when we get to those chapters, God has saved in the last 2,000 years, many Jewish people through the work of Jesus Christ. Small numbers compared to the final work God is going to do in his promise. Uh, and that's what Romans 11 is going to tell us that, hey, Gentiles, it's really cool. You guys have gotten in, but don't think you've taken it over. You actually got grafted in. That tree belongs, those original promises belong to Jewish elect. <clears throat> yeah, but, yeah, but, the church doesn't look like that right now. When's that going to happen? God says, when I save Israel, just as he says here. On the day that I cleanse you, you will do these things. All right, so at the bottom of page two, simply, it was promised in the Old Testament. It's inaugurated by Christ. Jews and Gentiles in this age enjoy it. And it's fulfilled at the end of this age in the beginning of the Davidic kingdom. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. On assurance, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Amy's question is: Would it be possible for an unbeliever to have some kind of assurance? Because unbelievers think they're saved sometimes, right? So yes, not assurance given by God, right? Uh, Romans eight, when when Paul talks about. Uh, the Spirit's been given, and he says, whoever does not have the Holy Spirit is not of him. You know, he's, not a, he's not a believer, obviously. And the Spirit was given to tell us that we're believers. So the kind of assurance that someone else has is, is a fleshly assurance, obviously. It's, it's a sense that they're fine. But that's what Paul was dealing with in Romans chapter 2, with the moralist or the, the Jew who thought, we're fine. But they're misreading scripture. They're basing it on a work salvation. Because in every case where people are assured that they're fine, at the bottom line, they are going to have a works belief. Even if they say, I believe Jesus is my Savior, what they're, somewhere inside there, in the contract they have in their heart, their contract includes a dot, dot, dot at the bottom, which is, I either keep it or I, or I earned it. And so they think they're trucking along just fine. Now, eventually that will be 
that will be brought out. But that's a good question. Yeah. Everybody's just here. All right. Well, then we'll go to page three. Now, this is going to be fun. Some of you are like, dude, we're doing a lot of theology today. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Abrahamic covenant. All right. Here's what I want to do real quick before we dive into the, the chart on there. I want to mention a big picture. All right. So we're in the book of Romans. So what's happening in chapter 4 here? It's this. That Paul has started the book of Romans talking about sin and the inability of people to believe, be saved. We've all been in this together for like 11 weeks. Nobody's getting saved by their works or their goodness or their innocence. Okay, amen. We're, we have finished that part, and we're in the second part of the book on salvation. Chapters 3, 4, and 5. And Paul has laid the groundwork of justification by grace through faith, etc. So where are we in this whole story? Paul is going to build an arc in this book in which he starts out with inability, and then he's going to build the whole story back, present, and future along a timeline of how God saves people. In chapter 9, he's going to go back and explain election. How did this all start? Why is this even happening in this context? And then he's also going to be talking about each part of this a little bit at a time. The, the chart that I've basically given you there, the Ordo Salutis, the Order of Salvation, is really the book of Romans miniaturized. But we have it. Paul didn't start, he didn't start in chapter 1 to talk about election. Right? Often when people argue about Arminianism and Calvinism and election, they're starting at the wrong point in the conversation. If you start out and just say, I believe God elected people and he chose them in eternity and that's how he saves people. The other person, no, what about the love of God? He's trying to save everybody. You're in the wrong conversation. Paul starts us out with, okay, I just need to ask a question, Paul might say. Can anyone actually believe? Is anybody good? Uh, is anyone going to heaven? Does anyone have... No, no one understands. No one seeks God. He starts with inability so that he can explain that election's a mercy. If nobody deserves it and nobody's going to after it, nobody wants it, then election doesn't look like a cold-hearted plan. It looks like a mercy. God saves some. No one deserves it. And that's the pattern of Paul, so... All right, so today we're not going to dig super down, uh, but the order of salvation, the book of Romans. A theological term referring to a list of events in which God applies salvation to us in the specific order in which they are believed to occur in our lives. Sometimes referred to by the Latin phrase that R.C. Sproul loved, the ordo salutis. If you look left to right in that picture, it's simply what I started. The order that Paul's going to build in the book of Romans is, this all started with God's plan of election. Then God, in his goodness, atoned for the sins of those he intended to save. And then he called those he intended to save. Romans chapter 8. Right? Romans 8 says, For whom God foresaw, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 
And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. There's your chart left to right. Election and predestination led to God calling people to himself. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he will eventually glorify and put them in heaven. That's Paul's ordo line in Romans chapter 8. The rest of the book fills in the, the other pieces. Uh, in Romans 8, it just told you the big picture of what God does, eternity past, eternity future. And then God, in his wisdom in Romans, has also told us how do we come back from the dead, regeneration. How does God convert man through grace by faith? Uh, how are we sanctified? Chapter 6 to 8 are in there. So let me do this. A few of you are very nervous. You ready to read the, leave the room? He's going to talk about election. Okay. Don't worry, I'm not going to mention the presidential elections or the midterms or any of that. Yeah, Donald. You may have covered this on a week that I wasn't here, mm -hmm. but when, what you said about innocence, it just brought up the question. So what is your thought on babies that die or babies that aren't even born yet? And so let's continue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sure, Donna. <laughs> no, it's a question I always deal with in Romans 5, but let me go ahead and do some justice to it here. Donna's question is, what about, with the innocents, what about babies who die? Uh, assumingly in vitro, or whatever. Um, three things. When we get to Romans 5 in the next, Lord willing, next week, I'm going to do all of Romans 5 on one Sunday, uh, Paul addresses the question of if you're in Adam or if you're in Christ. If you're in Adam, you are guilty of Adam's sins. So the three things that seem clear in, in Romans... Everyone in Adam's race, whether in vitro or born, are guilty of Adam's sin because he was the human representative for the entire human race. That'll be Romans chapter 5. That it's federal headship, it's called, but he's the representative and therefore all of us fall under his sin. In Adam, we sinned and we became sinners. So everyone's born a sinner. There is no tabula rasa, right? There's no blank slate. Nobody's born innocent or perfect. And so everyone who's ever been born, and everyone in vitro has a sin nature. As David said, in sin was I conceived, right? So every one of us, as a baby, was completely guilty before God because of Adam's sin. Then we multiplied it as we grew up on our own sins, right? So what happens to babies when they die? Uh, do they go straight to heaven? All right, let's close in prayer. <laughs> Um, no one goes to heaven because they're innocent. That would be my theological argument from Paul. That there is not a category of innocence. Please do not raise your hand yet. I understand this is a big deal, okay? I don't want to take this lightly, and next week it's embedded in Romans 5, okay? So I want to say it quickly. But I'm not going to stand back from it either. Everyone goes to hell unless God regenerates them, and causes them to have faith. No one goes to heaven by being innocent. There is no such category. I've read the thing in David. I know they didn't know their left hand from the right hand in the Old Testament, the children, whatever, but no child is going to heaven because they're innocent. There is no category of innocence. Uh, Paul is particularly, that's why this book of Romans is particularly important. He's like, everyone's a sinner. Everyone's under that headship. Romans 5 will say, everyone in Adam is going to perish. 
So how do babies go to heaven? Can they? All right, well, here's what I would say. The very verse that we read, the God who makes alive that which is dead and brings about that out of nothing creates something. <clears throat> if God is saving babies in vitro, then it is through his regeneration of them and causing a nascent faith in whatever God says. And some people would say, but how could a baby have faith because it's not fully developed mind? How do sinners who are dead in their sins believe the gospel? It's a miracle. So, that's right. Well, I, exactly. Man, you're still in my thunder. No. <laughs> right, John the Baptist in his mother's womb apparently was worshiping or was yeah. having a spiritual experience. I would just say this. <clears throat> it is not clear in Scripture what happens there, but I don't believe it's a mystery. It's not like we don't know. I'm sure that's a different category. That's not the right answer. I think the right answer is God has been very clear about who doesn't go to heaven. Nobody in Adam. But God could be saving every single baby if he wanted to. Maybe they're all elect. In which case, though, the scriptures tell us he would regenerate them. Because in Adam, they can't go straight to heaven. They're not innocent. They're not good people. He would have to regenerate them and then cause in them some faith towards him. What would that look like? God can save anybody. He can, he, can make, he can make children of Abraham out of stones. So my theology bottom line is this. I don't know which babies go to heaven or not. I cannot give assurance that your baby will go to heaven based on innocence. But it's not impossible that God is saving every single baby. I don't know that. But it would be based on what he has said in Scripture and not based on a category that we've invented. So that's my theology. Yeah, yes, ma'am. It's a good book. It's a good book. It's a good book. It takes a different view than what I just gave. It has a category of innocence. John MacArthur, Safe in the Arms of God. Yeah, um, there's another one by Robert Leitner called Heaven for Those Who Can't Believe, uh, which he was a professor of mine at Dallas Seminary, would take a different view. Uh, they would have more of a category of innocence. But you still have to atone for their sins. Right? Nobody's going to heaven who's not elect. Sins are atoned for. They have to be regenerated. And so really you get into, well, they're being saved. So what's the difference in any of that? So, but yeah. God is love and perfect so we don't, and just, so we don't have to. Right? I mean, we can depend on yeah. whatever he, he's decided, elect or not. That it's That's right. Uh, to, let me see if I can nuance that a little bit. <laughs> you you brought it back there. So at the beginning when you said, but God is love uh, and he's just though, that helps. That's right. You you got the balance, right? Because some will say, but God is loving and he's good. So I'm sure he's saving babies. And I'm like, God, if God is, if God's love is in question, why does anyone go to hell? Right. Right. If our argument is babies go to heaven because God is loving, then why does anybody go to hell? God is still loving but he sends certain people to help. So it has to be what scripture says. So Romans five next week, we'll address the issue of, do we believe that babies are innocent somehow, or there's a category for those who can't believe. I understand there's nuances of special need and all of that. There's complexities 
uh, there, but I can't get off of the one gospel or else I have a second gospel. It's like, what happens to the person who is in the middle of the, the jungle and can't believe? And you go, well, but they had a chance. They were an adult. Uh, that'd be the direction. But the point is, that's why Paul, Romans chapter 1, is they were without excuse. There's Nobody's innocent. Nobody's like, I didn't know, or I had a special category. Everyone outside of Christ will go to hell. That is, that's scriptures as I understand it. Therefore, preach the gospel, and... And answer questions from your wife. This is cool. It's not a question, but it's yeah. a statement that we live in such a strange world that if the Bible were really clear about this and said all babies go to heaven, people could take that to the extreme and say that I am doing them a service. By, by aborting them. By aborting them. So it is God's mercy yeah. that he leaves this unclear. That's right. So that... It's actually a protection for them. Yeah. Because somebody crazy or someone so in love with their baby would feel justified. Yeah. Great question. Who asked it, Donna? Sorry. What do you mean, sorry? That's a great That's the logical implication of the belief that, that of total depravity. So, Guys, again, and I want to say this, there, there almost certainly in this room have been those who've lost a baby along the way, and I'm sorry for you, and personally I want to make sure that what I'm saying, while that is my understanding of scripture, <clears throat> I'm not saying that in a cavalier way. Um, I have been there when babies have passed away, I've been in the hospital when those have happened, and I have never been asked in 39 years as a pastor by grieving parents, is my baby in heaven? Interestingly, you would think it would have happened, and I have been at many situations, have done funerals of a baby. But I've never been asked by uh, Christian parents. Um, it's like, and it's not like we didn't talk about stuff, but no one has asked me that in a direct way. It's my baby in heaven. Because they also know it's nuanced uh, in that conversation. But Pastor MacArthur's book is a good book. Dr. Leitner's book is a little more complicated, but a good book if you like to read it on that more specifically. All right. So what then is this whole picture about in the page three? Again, this is the contract's bigger picture. This is to understand that this whole new covenant saving us, if you just look at the middle of this contract and look at conversion, faith and repentance, and only justification, you're missing out on the whole story. And so in Romans chapter 1 through 4, Paul's only been concentrating on, hey, we're sinners, how are we saved? By faith, by grace through faith, and we're imputed righteousness and we're saved, right? Right? The rest of the book of Romans goes left and right, explains the backstory, and explains sanctification and all of those pieces. All right, so in prime for that, uh, election. An act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. What is foreknowledge then? Some people believe that foreknowledge is that God looks through the time tunnel, right? And he's got the glasses of truth and he's looking down there and he's like, that's going to be one of my believers. Okay, add him to the list. All right? Hey, they're believing in us. They're good people. Okay, he's in the book of life. God foresees their faith right, is what some people think foreseeing means. God's foreseen faith. 
But that's not what foreknowledge means. Let me explain. It's relating to the doctrine of election, the personal relational knowledge by which God thought of a certain people in a saving relationship to himself before creation. This is to be distinguished from the mere knowledge of facts about a person. Let me explain. God is omniscient. He knows everything. So therefore, God who created time and created the whole story, God has never had a new thought, right? We all know that. It's not like he had to create this so he could look in it. Right. He didn't have to have a model so that he could find out what time would look like. That has never changed. God knows everything before he ever does anything. So God, in his wisdom and knowledge, would know everything that is going to happen in time and space if he makes a world. He knows who's going to sin, who's not going to sin. He's going to know who's going to believe, who's not going to believe. None of them are going to believe. But his foreknowledge, his scriptural foreknowledge, is God's determination to have a personal relation. He foreknew them. Now, they don't know him back. We, we were not alive in eternity past. But God's foreknowledge, we're about to look at a verse that shows this very deeply, that God's foreknowledge is, those are mine. It's not a foreknowing. God knows everything. It's a foredetermination to know you personally. And one of the ways we know that is the verses here, uh, the third one down in the book of Acts, talking about Jesus, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. If the Son of God is foreknown by the Father, and it means that, the, the, that he was going to be the Savior and that God the Father only knew about it because he looked through the time tunnel, oh, he's the Savior. That's absurd. This idea of foreknowledge is God knew his Son and sent him for that purpose. God foreknew him. His Savior. It's not like he was surprised by who he is. So God's election is the determination of who he will save. The contract is very clear. The book of life is already set. The book of life is not being written in. Right? They're not making this as a go along. Every time someone gets saved, they don't put them in the book of life. The book of life is already set. If you're not in the book of life, you're not going to be saved. That would be predestined. You're predestined, it right? Would be predestined. That's right. That's right. So, what is predestination? How's that different than election? For now, election is choice. That's what the word means. God made a choice before there ever was a world, before anybody did anything good or bad, before anybody had thought whatever. God made a choice of who He would save. He foreknew them. He made a determined plan to add them to the contract that He was going to make, in which He'd have a personal relationship with us, and then He predetermined our destiny. He chose us, he decided we'd be his, and then what his meant was a destination, pre-destiny. What is the destination? To be conformed to the image of Christ and be with him forever. Chosen, related, determined end. And so what is predestination? Another term for election. In Reformed theology generally, this is a broader term that includes not only election, but also reprobation for, un, for non-believers. The destiny of the elect is to be conformed to the image of Christ. The destiny of the non-elect is to perish. Now, we'll get into that in chapters 9, 10, and 11. The question people ask is, does God make people go to hell? No. No, they're doing that all on their own. Nobody needs help going to hell. 
God doesn't force people to unbelief. But God has predetermined their destiny, and they will not believe because they will not. They refuse to believe. That's a lot in one day, and we haven't even gotten to chapter 9. And you're like, some of you are like, this is the last day I'll be in this class. <laughs> yeah, Donna. The, the book of life is already set. Do you believe that the, the timing of their faith is already set? Or is that... Well, certainly, uh, God knows the hairs on your head. He knows the days of your life, um, and God knows the day He's going to save you. So, so yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's all predetermined. Uh, there, there is nothing that's going to happen today that's not predetermined. That does not mean God is the only one acting. Because if God's the only one acting, then we are in the puppet motif. So, if what we meant was a fatalism that God is the only one acting, and we're just zombaloids, and God's moving, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. What we mean in predestination, of course, chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul's going to spend three chapters on the nature of election, sovereignty, how does God make predetermined choices, all that's in chapters 9 to 11, because we ask those questions. But, but the reality is, God has made a universe in which other beings are acting. We are acting, um, and we are making, um, what would Augustine call it, one of you guys can save me, uh, reasonable self-determination. People use the term free will, but it's not free from your nature. It's, it's only free to do what you really believe in or what your nature is. But we make reasonable self-determination. Uh, our actions matter for our destiny. Our actions matter for what we're doing. And you say, yeah, but they can't believe. They refuse to believe. Is, there's, there's a problem, and we'll get to that. But our actions are mattering. We are making them. God is not talking through me. It's not revelation. God is not breathing through you. God is causing you to be able to breathe. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. But your thoughts are your thoughts. Um, God is not channeling his thoughts through your head. You're a real, you are a sentient being in his universe. And in the play, in the story, you're making real determinative decisions. But those decisions cannot lead to a determined end that God would be against. Right? There's no way in that chess game you're going to win the chess game if you're playing God to say, but I can make the... You're not going to change. It's not going to be like one of the, the movies about how you can change the future. I love those movies, by the way. You know? Uh, so, the Adjustment Bureau. You know, those kind of movies. Yeah. So God knows everyone um, will choose against him without his intervention. That's right. And Jesus said uh, he knew the hearts of all the men, and he did not give himself to them because he knew what was in the hearts of men. Uh, everyone without a work of God will choose against God, will hate God. That's what scripture says. All men hate me. No one chooses my glory. No one understands. No one seeks after me. No one does good. There are none righteous. No, not even one. That's why this is so important to start with chapters 1 to 4. Otherwise, we're like, why aren't the good people being saved? Well, if you can find one. It's like Abraham with the three messengers. If there's ten good people in Sodom, it's, like, it's going to be hard to find. <laughs> it's going to be hard to find. Well, you know what? Three times now in God's providence, in my lack of whatever, I've come to what is now page four in these notes to finish the covenant discussion, and it's really out of time. I think in God's providence, I'm just going on with my life. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be in Romans 5. We'll be addressing being in Adam. But guys, the beauty of Romans 5, 1 to 11 is... There are ten different things which are benefits of justification. And Paul will start out and simply say, 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we'll look at, Lord willing, next week, all of chapter 5, and we'll address that. Let's pray.